We'll open it up to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 13 to 20 tonight. Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. And uh, while you are turning there, I want to make uh, just one quick announcement that uh, we didn't make earlier, and that is uh, next semester, you have an opportunity to take a class uh, called Perspectives. This is the slide for it, and you guys have cards on your chair also that give a little bit of information about Perspectives. Basically, Perspectives is a semester-long course. They meet once a week on Monday night, and uh, the idea is not just talking about world missions, although that's a huge part of it, but also talking about what is God's plan for all of the world. Um, what does God's plan look like to glorify himself through all of the nations? So whether you're somebody that's thinking about going overseas for missions or whether you are a person that isn't necessarily right now thinking about that, uh, I think it'll be an, a great opportunity for you. I actually took the class back when I was in college. And uh, just to give it a little bit of a plug, it was one of the most life-changing classes I think that I've ever taken. And that's not an exaggeration. The speakers and the content really gave me a truly new perspective on what God is doing in the world and around the world and what his plan is ultimately for the world. So I'd encourage you guys to check it out. I know there's a Facebook group, I think, that gives more information about dates, times, costs, all that kind of stuff. But it's through the spring on Monday nights, and I think they're meeting in this room is actually what I think they're doing. So we would love for you guys to check that out. All right, Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the name of Jesus as we just sang that it's high and lifted up. And Father, we want to praise the name of Jesus above every name, knowing that he is our Savior who died for us and he rose again and he lives today seated at your right hand. And he has gone before us into your presence and beckons us to follow him there so that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that we would trust in him. Lord, we pray that even when we are tempted, when we are facing trials, when we are facing suffering, that we would not walk away from Jesus, but that we would find refuge in him. Father, I just pray, give us understanding as we study the word tonight. Open up our minds. Allow us to know what it has to say to us. Father, I pray, remove the doubts and fears that we might have about following you. And Father, just through your spirit, uh, give us the power to obey. Thank you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, uh, the world is definitely filled with men who make false promises. Uh, there are con men all over the place. So this is why if you get an email from the uh, son of the Prince of Nigeria, you don't send him your money, hopefully, or your credit card information or anything like that, because you know it's a scam. If a promise seems too good to be true, the odds are that it is, uh, because it doesn't take long for us to look around and, and see men like Bernie Madoff, for example, who promised people a fortune if they invested with him and ultimately took billions of dollars from his investors in a huge scam. It doesn't take long to look around and see that not every promise comes true. One of the most famous and most skilled con men of uh, the 20th century uh, in the United States was actually a guy named George C. Parker. George C. Parker, it is said, sold the Brooklyn Bridge twice a week for several years. He uh, made a practice of selling the landmarks of the state of New York, and he would set up an office, and he would create fake documents and all kinds of stuff, and then he'd sell it. And a lot of people bought, supposedly, the Brooklyn Bridge from him, and then they would begin to set up toll booths on the bridge to collect tolls until the police told them, you actually don't own this bridge, right? You've been swindled. And uh, this went on for a long time. He uh, sold a number of different monuments, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he also sold the Statue of Liberty, At one point, uh, he also sold Grant's tomb by pretending to be General Grant's grandson and managed to sell that away to some people until he was caught and eventually went to jail. But he made a lot of money on his way there, right? By making false promises to people. And uh, all of us know that just because somebody promises something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come true. And especially in our modern world, we have sort of a spirit a lot of times of skepticism and for good reason. And as we look at the book of Hebrews tonight, we're dealing with a book written to a group of people who are living in skepticism about promises because God had made them promises. He had promised them eternal life if they believed in Jesus. He had promised them that if they were faithful and persevered in their walk with Jesus, they would have an inheritance and the opportunity to reign with Jesus And they would receive rewards for their faithfulness. We talked about that from 1 Corinthians 3 briefly last week. We talked about Luke 19, in which Jesus talks about how those who are faithful to walk with him will have the opportunity to reign over 10 cities, 5 cities, to reign in his kingdom. And so Jesus has given these promises to the people, but they're skeptical. These Hebrew people are skeptical because they're not sure if God can be trusted to keep those promises. The reason is because they're facing persecution and they're facing trial. These are probably Jewish Christians living in Rome, and as a result of their Christian faith, they're experiencing persecution. Their homes are being taken away. They're losing their social status. Some of them are losing their sources of income. And eventually, as the reign of Nero continued to go forward, some of them even lost their life. And so in the midst of this trial and persecution for the name of Jesus, their temptation is to flee back to Judaism, to go back to the life that they knew before they were following Jesus Christ. Because in Judaism, they perceived that there was a measure of safety. The Roman Empire sanctioned Judaism as an official religion. They did not sanction Christianity. The problem with Christianity was that the people wanted to worship Jesus exclusively and not Jesus plus the emperor. 
So they faced persecution. And in the midst of that, they're tempted to go back to the old way of life instead of Jesus. And they're, they're tempted to stop trusting the promises of God. So in that context, the author of Hebrews says, no, the worst thing you could do is walk away from Jesus. And that's what we saw in our last passage last week was that uh, there is a possibility even for believers that they might walk away from Jesus and experience terrible consequences as a result. And so that was our previous passage in the first part of chapter 6. This week now what he says is you don't need to worry that God is going to break his promises to you. God has promised you that if you will hold fast, you'll experience the opportunity to reign with Jesus. You'll experience the opportunity to receive rewards. You'll experience the opportunity to have an inheritance that you cannot have in Judaism. Now, uh, we've talked about this as we've walked through Hebrews. As we sit here and uh, think about this passage this evening, really none of us are tempted, I wouldn't think, to go into Judaism. Uh, We aren't necessarily born or raised in that environment. However, we might be tempted to go back to another way of life or to turn to a way of life other than Jesus Christ, believing that in that way of life, we might find some sort of safety and some sort of security. Right, whether it is uh, the promise of a safety in some relationship that is dishonoring to God or the promise of safety in pursuing career or money or prestige or the promise of safety in some other form of spirituality. And it may be that you think, you know, following Jesus Christ over the long haul of my life is going to be hard. And the reality is it is going to be hard at times. You might face loss of prestige at times, loss of even a job, loss of friendships, And so the temptation is, I'm going to just go back to the world's way of living. Settle into a comfortable pattern where I won't experience this constant tension of pursuing Jesus in a world that is hostile to him. That was the temptation of the people to whom Hebrews was written, and that's the temptation we have. And so in the midst of that, this author is going to give us an encouragement now to say, if you hold fast to Jesus, there are rewards that you could never have if you go back to the way of life of the world or the promises of the world. The world can never promise what Jesus can. And God can be trusted to keep his promises. So that's going to be the idea of our passage this evening. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 6. Look again at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. I'm going to stop right there and we'll come back. All right, what, what, what our author is saying is this, is that God made a promise all the way back in the Old Testament, to Abraham. And we're going to talk for a minute about that promise. But what he's saying is when God made this promise to Abraham and he repeated the promise to Abraham numerous times, God swore to Abraham that he would keep his promise to him. And he swore on the basis of two things. One of those things was God's character, which doesn't change. God cannot lie. The other thing was on top of that, God swore an oath. And I love the way the author puts this. It says that God swore an oath on himself. And the reason was because there was nothing greater to swear upon. If you go into court and you're going to testify in a court case, 
they will often pull you into the witness stand and they'll have you put your hand on a Bible, right? And they'll have you swear an oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And the implication of that is I'm putting my hand on the Bible. I'm submitting myself to the authority of God. And if I am lying, it's God who will punish me. You swear, as the author says, on something greater than yourself. So it says God wanted to swear an oath to Abraham and he looks around and he says, all right, what's greater than me? Nothing. So I'll swear upon myself. So God has his character, which does not change. And then he swears an oath to Abraham on that character so that his promises can be completely, absolutely trusted. And it says Abraham took that promise and he received the promise through patience and perseverance. And this is absolutely critical. You need to understand now the flow of what God promised to Abraham, what he did. So for a second, keep your finger in Hebrews. We're going to go back to uh, Genesis 12 for just a second. All right, so go from Hebrews, Genesis 12, all the way back, first book of your Bible. And start in verse 1, Genesis 12. Okay, Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes a promise to Abraham, and he says, All right, Abraham, I want you to leave your land, go to this new land. I'm going to give you a new home. And on top of that, I'm going to give you sons and daughters that are countless, as many as the sand on the seashore. And on top of that, through you, Abraham, and your descendants, I'm going to bless all of the nations. So this is the promise to Abraham. And I think the author of Hebrews goes back to Abraham, by the way, because Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And he says, all right, you want to go back to the promises in Judaism. Let's look at how God's promises work. He goes all the way back to Abraham, a time before the law was given, before the Jewish nation was established. And he says, let's look at how God's promises work. And he promises Abraham these things, land, descendants, and that he will bless the nations. He repeats that promise over and over again. But what we find is Abraham has to wait a long time before he has a child, 25 or 30 years. And in fact, uh, when Abraham's wife, Sarah, finally has this baby boy, Abraham is 100 years old and uh, Sarah is 90. Uh, Now that's old to start a family, right? If your great grandmother came to you and said, uh, I got something to tell you, I'm pregnant, right? You would laugh just like you just did, didn't you? That's exactly how Abraham and Sarah respond. When God, when Abraham is 99 years old, God comes and he says, Abraham, next year, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah is sitting outside the tent and she hears and she just bursts into laughter. How can a 90-year-old woman have a baby? But Abraham is patient and faithful and he waits. And he sees this child be born. The fulfillment of God's promise that he would have an heir. Okay, now what's amazing then is you get to Genesis chapter 22. After Isaac has been born, God has reiterated this promise to Abraham over and over again. And he's got this child, this heir for God's promise. And what does God say to Abraham? Abraham, I want you to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Get some wood together, get a knife. Go up to the mountain, bind him to these logs And sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. Kill him, light him on fire. So Abraham, in obedience to God, goes up 
toward Mount Moriah and Isaac is with him and Isaac is old enough to understand the concept of a sacrifice. So as they're walking up there, Isaac says, hey, dad, uh, just a question. Where's the lamb? And Isaac's not a dummy, right? He's starting to wonder something weird is going on. Dad's got a knife. Dad's got wood and dad's got me, right? But no lamb. And Abraham, it says, we find out later in Hebrews, Abraham's trying to reconcile all this. If God made a promise to me, and yet he's telling me to kill the fulfillment of that promise, how can God be faithful? So Abraham is experiencing this tension between what God has promised and what he is experiencing at that moment. And so it says Abraham in faith reasoned, well, God must be able to raise him from the dead. That's the only way this is going to work. So Abraham goes up on the mountain and you know the story. He ties Isaac to the wood. He puts him on the altar and he raises his knife up. And right as he's about to sacrifice his only son, God says, stop, don't do it. Look over there in that bush and there's a ram. Untie Isaac, right? This this must've been an awkward moment, I would imagine. Untie Isaac, go get the ram, put the ram on there instead. And God provides and what, what our author is telling us is it's at that point after Abraham agrees to sacrifice Isaac and God provides and God says to Abraham, because you've done this, because you have not even withheld your only son from me, even in the midst of this dissonance that Abraham was feeling, you haven't withheld your son, I surely will multiply your descendants. They will be a blessing. I will give you this land. And God swears an oath on his own character. And so Hebrews tells us that it was Abraham's faithfulness and perseverance, not that allowed the promise to be true, right? The promise was true when God first gave it back in Genesis 12. But what happened is Abraham now has a full assurance that the promise is true. The promise doesn't change. What changes is Abraham's understanding and experience of the promise. Abraham gets to see God act in a mighty way to fulfill this promise even in his lifetime. Abraham gets to see the fact that God's promises are always true and he has this depth of assurance and this fellowship with God that he would not have had had he chosen to disobey God in that moment. God's promise was true regardless. Abraham's experience of the promise changed based upon how he was faithful. And so God says, Abraham, I will certainly swear to you that I will fulfill my promise. All right, and so our author says, look, God was faithful to Abraham back then. All right, and that's, that's really our first point, that God was faithful to Abraham. You can go back and look at how God kept his promise to the father of the Jewish nation. And the evidence of that is you, Hebrews, members of the Jewish nation who are alive today, who God has protected and kept alive through attack by the enemy, through exile in Babylon, through Roman oppression, and God has protected his people. When God makes a promise, you can trust it. So he says, look, God's past faithfulness is evidence of his future faithfulness. If God's been faithful in the past, he'll be faithful in the future. Somebody can be trusted based upon their past reliability often. Look at it this way. If you're looking for a car and you have a couple options, maybe you want to buy an older car, Uh, you could go, I guess, and you could buy a Ford Pinto, right, from the 1970s. Or maybe you decide it's between a Ford Pinto and a Honda Accord, and you're weighing your options. You think, all right, uh, the Pinto kind of, it's a cute little car, but it has a bad habit of uh, bursting into flames when someone hits it from the rear, right? And uh, the Accord, on the other hand, is pretty reliable. It'll last a long time. Which am I going to choose? 
you're going to choose the one that has a track record of reliability. Uh, You do this in all of your life. Uh, Ladies, it's unlikely that you would knowingly decide uh, to date a guy who has cheated on his last four girlfriends and been unfaithful. No, you want somebody who has a track record of faithfulness. It's unlikely that you're going to go to your friend who has a terrible haircut and say, I want one of those. Where did you get that? No, you're going to go to the friend whose hair consistently looks great because you want to go to the guy who has a track record of reliability. And that's what our author is saying. God has a faithful track record to the Jewish people. And when he makes a promise, it can be trusted. You can trust him. So the last section here then says, God, then we can trust that he'll be faithful to us. If he was faithful to Abraham, he'll be faithful to us. Look at the end of, actually, I'm going to start again in verse 18 and we'll read through 20. It says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus had gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so God has made this oath and this promise to Abraham, and because of that, we now can have encouragement that we can flee to God for refuge. Now, this imagery comes from the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, there were set aside different cities throughout Israel that were cities of refuge. And if you accidentally killed somebody, all right, if it was an accident and somebody died, uh, you could go to one of those cities of refuge and you could hide there so that that person's relatives wouldn't track you down and kill you, right? And so they were known as sort of safe bases. Another place that was safe and another place this imagery might come from is uh, often when people were wanting to get away from someone who was trying to harm them, they would run into the temple and they would grab a hold of the horns of the altar of burnt offering and they would stand there and they were safe there in the temple, supposedly. Uh, When Solomon becomes king, uh, this is where Joab, David's army commander, he flees to the temple and he grabs a hold of the horns of the altar of burnt offering to say, I'm safe. Unfortunately, Solomon kills him anyway. But the idea is that he's supposed to be safe there, right? So that's where this imagery comes from. And he he brings that up to say this. These believers are looking for a place to hide. They're looking for a refuge. Why? Because around them, the world is persecuting them. They are experiencing pain because of their walk with Christ, just like you and I will if we walk with Jesus for a lifetime. There will always be a conflict between the values of Jesus Christ and the values of the world. And sometimes that conflict of values leads to suffering. And he says, you're experiencing that. And what you want to do is you want to sink back into Judaism because in that you feel you're going to be safe. You're going to have a refuge. And he says, no. Instead, flee for refuge to Jesus Christ because it's in Jesus Christ that you have safety. Doesn't mean that Jesus will always keep you from all persecution or all pain. But it means that Jesus will protect for you and guard for you those things that are eternal and most important. You might suffer temporarily by pursuing Jesus, but eternally, again, you will have an inheritance, you will have a reward, you will have an opportunity to reign, you will have a depth of assurance and fellowship with God that you will never have if you lapse back into the old way of life. Jesus is your safe base. Some of y'all know I have two daughters, six and almost three now, and uh, one of their favorite games to play with me as their dad is uh, the Tickle Monster game. Uh, I am 
the Tickle Monster. Uh, you may not have uh, known that before tonight, and I'm not sure I'm going to be glad I told you. But anyway, uh, so I will often, you know, they'll go into their room, the door will be closed, and I'll knock on the door, and they'll say, who is it? And I'll say, it's the Tickle Monster, or I'll make something up, right? Like, um, you know, I have pizza, or I have candy, or, you know, whatever it is, and uh, they will... Uh, they will open the door and then I will rush in and I will uh, grab them and I will tickle them. And the goal is, of course, to uh, try to tickle them just under the point of torture, right? You want them to be uh, gasping for breath, but before the tears begin to come, right? And then we'll go and we'll play it again. Uh, but as we've played this game over time, they've learned something. And that is if they get up and they run to my wife, they then will go to my wife and they'll stand next to her and they'll say, I'm safe. And she'll look at me and she'll go, they're safe right? She's the base. Maybe you played base tag at some point when you were a kid and there's a base. You get onto that base and you're safe. You can't be tagged. That's your point of refuge. These believers are looking for a place of refuge, a place to hide. The author says that place to hide is in Jesus Christ. As long as you are pursuing him and in his will, he will safeguard those things that are eternally important for you. But if you Go back into the old way of life. You may have temporary relief, but at the cost of an eternal reward. So he says, no, Jesus is your refuge. Jesus is your hiding place. And so the question we have for one another is, what are you, hide, what are you hiding in when you feel pressured? You feel lonely. You feel discouraged. You feel isolated from others because of your walk with Jesus or it's difficult or you feel like somebody else is enjoying their life more, do you go into pursuing the values of the world to find safety instead of to Jesus? Jesus is your refuge. And then he goes on, verse 19, and says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so he says, look, in Jesus Christ, we have refuge in God. Jesus, because he died for our sins and he rose again, now gives us access to God. And the imagery again here is that Jesus has gone into this inner place behind the inner curtain in the temple. Remember the most holy of holy places in the temple, only the high priest could enter in. And a couple of weeks ago, our author made the case that Jesus is the best high priest after the order of Melchizedek, whom we'll talk about more next week, but he is an eternal high priest, not like the priests of the old covenant because Jesus defeated sin once and for all by dying and rising again. So now he can go into the Holy of Holies and we can go in with him. And if we attach ourselves to Jesus, now we have access to God and we have refuge in God. And that refuge in God is like an anchor. Jesus is our anchor in the presence of God. And so as long as we're attached to Jesus, we're anchored to God. And so we have refuge and hope and peace in God through Jesus Christ alone. If you know Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity to have this access to God. If you believe that only in Jesus Christ alone you have forgiveness of all your sins because he died for your sins and he rose again so that you have eternal life. If you believe that, you have this access to God. If you don't believe that, for you tonight, the message is simply this, that only in Jesus Christ can you have eternal life. Only in Jesus Christ can you know God. And that is found simply by believing in what he has done to pay the penalty of your sin and give you eternal life. 
For those who know Jesus, then what he's saying is, you cling to Jesus Christ because he's your anchor. He's your solid place, even when there's temptation and suffering and storms and trials. The early church, when they were under persecution, many of them were martyred for their faith. And if you go into Rome today, there are what they call catacombs. Catacombs are like an underground sort of maze where there are tombs deep underneath the ground. And many of these catacombs are Christian catacombs where Christian martyrs were buried. Christians would bury their dead. Often the Romans instead, or the pagans, would just burn or cremate their dead. And so Christians wanted to bury their dead, but the Romans wouldn't allow them to bury them in regular graves. So they would dig these catacombs deep under the ground, and they would bury their dead and their martyrs there. And as you walk into some of the catacombs today, one of the symbols that you see on some of the crypts and on some of the tombs is an anchor like this. And what they would do is they would, they would come up with Christian symbols that they could put onto these tombs to represent that they were believers in Jesus Christ. One of the symbols was a fish. You've seen the fish with ichthus written in the middle. That's a, uh, an abbreviation that they use. Ichthus meant fish in Greek, but it was also an abbreviation where each letter meant something. So it was Jesus Christ, uh, God, Savior, Son. And they would abbreviate that and draw a fish to indicate Jesus. So when they were under pressure, they could draw that fish and they would know if another person was a Christian without giving themselves away. The anchor was very similar. They would draw this anchor on their tombs. And if you look obviously at the top of this anchor, it looks like a cross, right? So it was a way to represent the cross of Jesus Christ without drawing unnecessary attention to themselves. And in the midst of persecution and martyrdom, they would draw an anchor, no doubt thinking of this passage. That Jesus Christ, even in the midst of temptation, suffering, trial, and even death, Jesus is our anchor. And sometimes on that anchor would be attached little fish, which represented the Christian. And those little fish are tied to the anchor of Jesus Christ. The idea is you can kill us, but you can't take away our hope because Jesus is anchored in God's presence where those who have believed in him have access. And those who are faithful to him have rewards and inheritance and opportunities to reign in God's kingdom that you don't have if you lapse back into the old way of life. So they would draw this anchor to represent that Jesus was their refuge. And my guess is that there are some of us in here right now that are struggling deeply with that tension. I can remember my freshman year in college, I struggled with this tension between walking with Jesus Christ or walking the way of the world. Uh, the, one, the people that lived around me, often it seemed like they had more fun. They were engaged in uh, godless behavior. They were engaged in all kinds of partying and sexual immorality, and they seemed to have friends, and they seemed to have a life that I didn't have and a quality of life that I felt like I was temporarily sacrificing. And it was tough and it was painful. But what I found over time is that as I cling to Jesus Christ... Like Abraham did, I have a sense of assurance and a sense of hope and a fellowship with God and a reminder of the blessings that come through obedience that I I would not have had otherwise. Salvation is an absolutely free gift by believing in Jesus Christ, but the scripture also makes it clear that there are blessings for those who will pursue Jesus Christ faithfully to the end of their life. 
And just like Abraham, as we continue to pursue him faithfully, we have a deeper assurance than we could possibly have otherwise that uh, we are pursuing those things that will last forever. So are you pursuing the things that are going to last forever or are you going back into the values of the world for safety and comfort, but sacrificing perhaps something much more valuable? Jamie's going to come up and, and close us with a song. As he does, I just want us to ask ourselves this question. Will you and I, will we seek refuge in Jesus or in the false promises of the world? Where will we find safety? Where will we find refuge? Where will we find hope? Hebrews tells us it's ultimately to be found in Jesus Christ, not in any promise the world can make. Uh, The world's promises are the false ones. God is not the con man. The world around you is. And yet in Jesus Christ, we have an eternal hope that, that can't be taken away if we hold to the anchor. Our Father, we do pray that we would stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, not on the shifting sands of what our world would promise us. Lord, instead on on the solid rock of you. Lord, we praise you that Jesus has gone before us into your presence and is anchored there, and we pray we would hold to the anchor. Lord, uh, for those of us who are in here who are uh, tempted uh, by the things the world has to offer in the midst of trial and struggle, I pray, just make us faithful through the power of your Spirit. Lord, let us cling to Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you again for this time. We pray be with us as we go out. In Jesus' name, amen. See you all next week.